You're listening to Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris. Thanks for listening. This episode is an audio-only version. To see the full video interview, plus outtakes and additional content, check out tendingbar.org. And while you're on the site, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tending Barcast. Hi, I'm Todd Harris, and welcome to another episode of Tending Bar. As you know, Tending Bar is uh, was conceived as a way to introduce my law students at Georgetown to interesting lawyers who have interesting stories to tell about their careers, in each case where their careers are about more than a paycheck, where they're about something bigger than themselves and about something that serves the wider community. And so in each episode, we've introduced you to some people who have have done some great things, service to the community and to the world, and that'll be the case today as well. Um, Today, we're going to introduce you to my friend, Jen Detrani. She is the general counsel of Nisos, a company in San Diego and co-headquartered here in Washington, D.C. We'll hear a bit about that. What I think is fascinating about Jen's career is that she spent some time in government and has, and because she cared about certain issues, and now that she is in private practice, she's found a way to serve those interests as well for the greater community while working in private enterprise. And we'll hear a bit about how even in a company, we can do things that are serving the wider community. Now, Jen and I met months ago um, when we were both sitting on a panel that was talking about ways to have healthy conversations regarding workplace diversity. And uh, we're going to talk about that just a bit as well, because she's got some particular, uh, very interesting perspectives um, from her position there in the company. So I'd like you to welcome to Tending Bar, my friend, Jen Tetrani. Jen, welcome. You're on the air. Thanks, Todd. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm glad so to be here. I'm glad, I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to talk about a number of things as I, as I previewed there. But I want to start off in the way that we've been starting off with each of our guests, and that is to ask you to tell our viewers how it was that you decided to become a lawyer. Why did you come to the law? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I came to the law somewhat reluctantly, I would say. Uh, I almost tried as many things as I could not to become a lawyer, and then I finally succumbed to to the calling. Um, I had uh, graduated college um, and spent some time in D.C., um, which is where I'm from. Um, and I always had an inkling that that wasn't necessarily right, the right path for me. So I, I moved to San Francisco, which, you know, back in the day, you know, when the when the dot com um, boom was happening, that was the place to be. Um, and I I sort of tried out um, different things, including including advertising and then really. I think it was it was there that I really kind of came around to the sense that I wanted to jump back into academia and see what the law was really about. Um, and so I ended up at Michigan, uh, spent a couple of years there, and then um, and that's where I headed back west um, to start out my legal career at, at Cooley. Um, so yeah, it was it was a circuitous route. Um, there was a, a bit of dabbling in government, um, and and again like that that whole piece. I think when you're young, you're not really sure what you're most adept at, at doing or where you're going to thrive. So I do a lot of trial by fire, I would say. Well, so uh, I want to hear about one of those in particular. So if I understand correctly, um, you, your father was in the intelligence community and um, 
you you began work as an intern at the at the tender age of 16 interning for the CIA is that is that accurate tell us about that that is accurate. That is accurate. That was that was when I was graduating from high school. So that's when, you know, and and, you know, really, to be honest, like it wasn't meritorious. It really was sort of a way to, I think, probably keep CIA kids engaged over the summer. <laughs> and so that's where I found myself. Uh, but it was, you know, it was it was fascinating. It was it was uh, it was very fun, you know, getting into the agency and and really taking that seriously. But at that tender age, I think also there, there was a sense that, you know, I, I would maybe have rather preferred to be folding sweaters at the gap that summer as well, you know, so, so you don't really appreciate what you have all the time. It was two summers that I spent there. And I, and I, and I thought about it very critically. And I, and I looked at the State Department too, when I, when I had gotten out of college, and even after law school. But it, it for me, it just wasn't the right fit, I think. Um, but I loved the issues, right? Like, like to be 16 and, and helping folks in the, in, in like a division, you know, um, track down bad guys, you know, and deal with issues that are larger than us. Like that was something that I think I, I knew I wanted to do. I just wished I had the, the skill set and the attributes that would have allowed me to survive in an environment like that. I, I was more, I was more focused on other other ways of using my skills, I think. But that, that wasn't your only um, sojourn through government service. You spent some time at the DOJ. Can you tell us a bit about that? I did. I did. So yeah, after Cooley, um, I worked um, here in San Diego at the U.S. Attorney's Office as a U.S. attorney. Um, spent two years as a trial attorney, coming straight out of a corporate uh, law position, which was uh, very, very... Um, bipolar some would say <laughs> it's it's a it's a very different skill set and a very different um pond that you're playing in um when you walk into um a new position like that and and here in San Diego we have you know a massive influx of cases coming across the border on a daily basis so they they really needed a lot of um young attorneys to help address that and so you know on any given day you could walk into your office and and have you know a couple of new cases um, that were all trial track, you know, sitting on your desk that you either had to take to trial or plead out. So it was, it was, it was fun work. It was definitely um, challenging um, and very different than what I'd been doing. But that was, you know, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't built for litigation. And I think I probably confirmed that. <laughs> so, so um, but the DOJ wasn't, wasn't really a fit for you, as I understand it. What, what was it that was, that was a challenge for you. How did that help you discover sort of where your path ultimately would lead? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because at my current company, we use this terminology a lot, this adversarial mindset. And, and we use it in the, we use it in the context of like threat hunting and finding bad actors and helping companies address those bad actors. But, uh, adversarial mindset in the context of litigation is really the mindset that you're in all the time. And so for me, it was hard for me to come to terms with who I was as a person who would go home at the end of the night and, you know, make a nice meal and try to watch a show and also like come to work and get myself into that adversarial mindset. Um, it's a hard place to exist if that's not what you're, what you're inclined to do. Um, and so for me, I think that was the, that was maybe the hardest part was trying to 
be the, you know, be the competitive and adversarial um, sort of um, protector that, that the government wanted me to be, that I owed them to be based on, you know, um, taking this position. And I, I really um, enjoyed it. I, I really have a ton of respect for people who do that. Um, but it really, it was for me, I think if anything, that confirmed my belief that like, I knew I wanted to be a collaborative lawyer. I knew I wanted to kind of move over to something that was value added. Um, which isn't to say that we don't need lawyers, you know, at DOJ doing exactly that. But those, you know, those are, that's a different, that's a different breed of, of animal than, than what I am. <laughs> well, I've heard, I've heard you say very elo- eloquently before that you need a career that matches your identity and, and who you are. And so, um, so you found that, that that kind of work in DOJ was not ultimately the best match or fit for your personality and, and uh, who you wanted to be. But it seems like you've sort of found your way back now to a company where you're doing work that um, maybe is an arc from those early days in the CIA. <laughs> uh, you're back yeah. in national security again, um, back in sort of intelligence related work, but from a private company. Can you tell us, tell us about your company and your, and your role at, at NISOS? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, yeah, Nisos is, it's a great place to sort of cut your teeth. I wouldn't call it national security. I would definitely say that almost all cybersecurity work that you do these days has a geopolitical aspect at times. Um, and we are securing, you know, Fortune 1000 companies from from nation state level attacks, which is, I guess, national security-ish. But um, uh, we definitely try to bring over um, all of the wealth of knowledge that our operators have from working in the um, intelligence community or elsewhere into into the private sector so that security teams who don't have the capabilities that we have can actually sort of learn from us iteratively um, and then also like get a high level of expert advice on how to approach certain issues. So go back to on that. So the founders at Nisos are themselves former workers in the intelligence community. They're former cybersecurity government officials themselves. And so um, they, they come to this private enterprise with a wealth of experience in securing government infrastructure against nation-state mm-hmm. level attacks, as you say, and other attacks. That's right. Yeah. And so, and so, what what's the nature of the service that the companies are that your that Nisos is providing to its Fortune 100 size companies uh, customers today? Mm-hmm. Yes, it could be anything. Honestly, it runs the gamut. So, and you know this too from your background in privacy law too. I think is. Um, you know, company today is at risk of so many different things, right? Like when we came up as lawyers, like it was a whole different set of issues that you had to be available to help your clients with. Now, when you look at the spectrum of what a company risks, like their reputation, monetary damages, those are all really right out there on the line when you've got the cyber threats that are really ready to take down a company's stock value in, in the matter of a day. So, so what we do is, you know, we help with everything. I mean, from incident response, which could be a breach situation, um, to trying to understand like the the vulnerabilities of executives within a Fortune you know 100 company, um, or you know a lot of M and A due diligence, trying to understand what a target company looks like 
really when you peel back the layers of what its legacy networks contain. All of those are risks. All of those are threats. Um, and then you've got active actors who are out there trying to deliberately um, uh, extract value from a company, whether it's ransomware, uh, whether it's a short and distort scheme, right, where you're manipulating stock prices, um, and anything that can happen on social media platforms that can immediately sort of disturb a company's presence or trajectory. Those are the those are the advanced threats that I think most companies, you know, and their IT departments aren't necessarily prepared to handle or shouldn't necessarily try to handle on their own. So, so uh, I suppose the COVID nineteen uh, work at home era has revealed to us certain vulnerabilities about our own economy, uh, right? Uh, we could just imagine how difficult it would be for us right now if there had been a, a large breakdown in the supply chain to grocery stores across America, that would be be terrible. In fact, we've seen some of that in the meat supply. But just yeah. imagine if uh, there were a breakdown in the infrastructure of our telecommunications um, industry oh, yeah. due to cyber attacks, for example. Um, and that, that might have prevented our ability to work from home, uh, to telecommute, just the way that most of us are doing right now. And so um, we can we can see that uh, a bad actor, perhaps a, um, an adversarial state actor, uh, would want to exploit those vulnerabilities, or, or they they would see those as prime targets. I would imagine, just like North Korea attacking Sony Pictures, oh, yeah. for example. So, how how serious is this threat that our you know our largest and uh, companies that that support us all are facing today? Oh, I think it's extreme. I mean, I, I don't think there's any question but that it's, you know, one of the greatest threats that we face, right? Now, now that, I mean, the COVID-19 is such a great example. It, it literally forced the entire world's workforce to move into a remote, you know, scenario that, yeah. that most companies weren't prepared to address. And most companies would have taken months to scale up into. And so we're, we're patching, we're doing it on the fly. You know, um, and so the platforms that enable all of that productivity are not fully vetted, right? And so, to that extent, to the extent that those companies are responsible companies, they're trying to make sure that they have, you know, the best in class sort of approach to that. Um, because again, all those damages that go along with the reputation um, and and the not being able to fully work against the promises that you've made the public are going to be very injurious. Um, so yeah, all of the threats, I think we've tracked for a long time that, you know, um, all of the threats, not just supply chain, but anything, you know, involving infrastructure is extremely critical. Even as we think about like autonomous vehicles or any alternative, you know, modes of transportation, like becoming a real reality for ourselves and our kids, like the idea of vetting that appropriately, that's kind of where we come in is the vetting is to make sure that something is what you think it is and to protect it as well as, as a government agency would protect it. That's really, I think the value that, that we bring to the table. And that's why it's fascinating to be, you know, the lawyer to all of these operators who are, doing these engagements because it's not me, right? Like, like I tell them I'm the service provider for you. Like I'm here to help you figure out how to do your job better, which is help these companies. Cause I, it's not me helping them necessarily. I'm, you know, I'm just the lawyer, but, uh, but really enabling 
enabling this type of service to really go from company to company is, is what we're trying to do. We're trying to raise the bar. Well, that's great. So um, I, I, I'd like if we can to sort of shift direction yeah. just a little bit, um, but we can start start with your company. When we first met uh, in the fall, mm-hmm. I, I believe it was fall of last year, uh, at that time, among your management, you were the only only woman, as I recall. Is that still the mm-hmm. case? That's, so, yeah, that's and, still and, the case. And we were on the, um, uh, which is not unusual uh, in a in a small company. Don't want to don't want to suggest otherwise. But um, but I, um, we gathered together to talk about diversity issues, and you had great perspective to provide as the woman speaking to a number of ex Intel community um, officials who've come into private enterprise who are all men. Talk to us a little bit about um, your role in supporting diversity issues in the company. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. There's the question of how to do it in a company, especially a startup company, right? Because you've got the limited resources. There's a question of how to do it within cybersecurity, which is an even smaller environment for females um, and minorities. and I think we, yeah, we had a great conversation about that because the question of the question was how the tech industry, you know, kind of can teach different industries about how to do it. And it's been hard. It's, been, I mean, to be honest, um, as a, you know, prior to Nisos, when I was a co-founder at Wicker, which is a secure communications platform, trying to hire engineer like female engineers or minority engineers, like, you know, you have to, you have to really make it a priority, right? Like you can't, it won't, you're not just going to accidentally stumble upon it. And so it's a mindset for me is, is really trying to approach everything from that, from that angle. And, and from there trying to get other people to see that from that angle, and then to create that sort of mass understanding that this is an objective of a company at at the startup stage, it's hard to do anything really beyond that because we are at a point where we're just operationally trying to, uh, prolong runway and ensure that like, you know, all the families associated with X number of employees, you know, are going to be fed, you know, and that's, and that's, if you don't have a company, you can't even have diversity. So, so you've got to kind of choose your battles, but I, I definitely, you know, through my whole life have tried to be cognizant of, of being like the strong female minority who changes people's viewpoints about, what it means to have a minority female within your executive leadership team, for example, right? Like I, I even try to do the same thing with lawyers, right? Like, you know, this, I mean, people, people find out, you know, you're a lawyer and you know, there's a, there's a slight eye roll, you know, it might not be perceptible, but you know, try to be the person who makes lawyers like look better because I am always trying to be a better lawyer. I'm also trying to be a better person at, at, advancing the cause of what I think is, you know, a trail of, of, uh, minorities and females who didn't have the same opportunities growing up necessarily and aren't looked at in the same way, just because of, because of things that are outside of their control. Um, I mean, I think today, you know, as I don't know, um, you know, it's never been more important to be cognizant of that given everything that's going on post COVID, yeah. you know, and during the riots, it's a very hard time to talk to your kids about what all of this means. And so I think the best you can do is to have integrity and in, in who you are and try to advance that any way that you can. 
So, um, so we should note for people who are watching, I'm not sure when this will be published, but um, at the time we're recording this, there have been riots around the country. Um, uh, and I don't want to label them all as riots. There have been protests around the country. Some of them have um, erupted into, into some measure of violence uh, related to um, police killings of innocent um, black men around the country, not just men. And um, uh, that, that has heightened a lot of conversation around diversity. So it's timely that we have this conversation. When we met, you're right, the topic of the panel at the time was what, what the tech industry in particular, the tech industry that you and I are part of, um, can teach about workplace diversity. So um, what, what would be some ideas that you could provide about how to broach this topic in the workplace? What, what are some, what's some advice that you can give? Yeah, I think I think first and foremost, like recognizing that it's an objective of the company that, you know, so whenever you have a, you know, a code of ethics or whatever, like to the extent that you can identify that that is a goal of the company, you know, why, you why set, is it a goal of the company? Why, why, why do we make it a goal? How do we explain that? I mean, it's so easy to explain, especially in the tech industry building products, you know, and, and having services that reach a scope of people, not just one type of person is what makes, you know, companies successful. There's no two ways about it either. You know, you can have a very, you can have a regional mindset and a regional company, or you can have a global mindset and a global company that, that looks at things from all different angles. Um, and, and that's where I think you find the most success, right? Like if you, if you, are closed down to one way of seeing things like that's not, you're not going to see those companies become the Amazons. You're not going to see them, you know, become the, the huge companies that, that reach like that audience. So, so I think first and foremost, like the diversity is, is the, it's the order of the day because it allows us to sort of look at things from, from a way that everybody, everybody should be looking at things, which is not just insularly. Um, but outside of that, I would say, you know, for me, diversity, a lot of that has to do with how we treat other people who are diverse and allowing them to sort of have our protective auspices to rise up within. I mean, I know as a young lawyer, I was not the person who was raising my hand in class, right? Like as a female, as a minority, I was sitting as far back as possible, you know, and just hoping that I wouldn't get called on because I just didn't know if what I had to say would be valuable. And so to the extent that you can identify people within your companies, you know, or even within your law school class, you know, that have those characteristics that just need a little bit of a push up, um, give it to them, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't take anything from you. And I think that sense of operating from a, from a place of abundance um, is really where we all need to get. Because if we think that, you know, if we have something that if someone else has something, we can't have that. Like that's the place where I think we get really trapped. Um, that there's enough A's to go around for everyone. There's, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. <laughs> you know, my, because I'm happy doesn't mean that you're not going to be happy. You know, there, it's actually a multiplier effect. And so I've been really, you know, it's one of the most gratifying things for me is trying to work with other females. Um, cause we're, you know, we're a smaller group of people within a cyber company, you know, um, and, and, you know, and create a support system, you know, and it doesn't have to be formal. It just has to be kind. 
Um, and that's, and that's really where I try to lead from. Yeah. So, um, I, I love that perspective. So if I could repeat it in a couple of uh, different ways, um, you've described talking to people in the workplace about the grounds for supporting diversity in a couple of ways. Um, one is to say it's good for business. It's good for us yeah. to be uh, diverse because we incorporate diverse perspectives into our operations, into our products, into our services, into our management, and that will make us a better company. And um, I, I think the data are showing that repeatedly now. Business schools have been studying this and, and demonstrating that diverse organizations uh, perform in superior ways on, on a lot of measures, including profitability uh, in the tech industry. Sure. Um, and then, and then, so that's that's one way of describing it. Another, as you've described, is um, so that our organizations, again, back to the theme, um, match not just our personalities, but who who we want to be as people and as organizations that they that they meet our values. Um, I wonder if the COVID nineteen era hasn't also um, helped us to think about that that second idea as well and when as as companies have had to think about how to protect their own personnel mm-hmm. um, i'm so i'm so accustomed to hearing um, business persons say those are not our issues our issues are to drive profits for the shareholders that that's we have to keep that first and foremost we're not about social good those kinds of things those are nice to have but not what we're about and covid19 has helped us to um to question that a bit as we as we've realized how important it is to value um, the people that that make up our organizations. Uh, we have to keep them healthy. We have to keep them safe. And, uh, you know, even to the to the issues that we've been seeing at the source of the riots, these diversity concerns that people have been yeah. voicing uh, remind us how important it is to care about, uh, you know, all, all of our all of our neighbors, of course. And we want to do that in our in our workplaces. Do you, you feel COVID-19 has had an impact on, um, on the perspective in your company? I think it has. I mean, I think it, it's been good for us, not good for us. I would take that back, but it's been easier for us in certain ways. Uh, we were already a distributed workforce, um, and remote, right. And I, I've been, I've been remote for almost 10 years now. So it's been, that wasn't a heavy lift for us, but, uh, but no, it's not, it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been fun, right? Like every company is tightening their belts and we have to look at what it means to continue to service clients as they look at their budgets. Um, and internally, they're all making adjustments that affect people and their families um, and their benefits. And, you know, it's it, the impact is everywhere. So I think if anything, it's been heartening to see people come together, especially like within our company, you know, with the affectations that like maybe weren't there before because you know we're a company you know that's that's you know pretty 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 light on the affections you know we we get our work done but you see everyone in this day and age you know asking like how are you i hope your family is safe and healthy you know almost like an 18th century reading uh but that's the but that's the order of the day, right? And that's and that's where I think that it's if there's been anything positive coming out of this, it's allowed us to kind of 
peel back the layers of who people are as they sit behind their desk and send us emails and look at who they are as a person with, with their families sitting behind them, sometimes literally sitting behind them, um, <laughs> right. whether it's a child, you know, like playing on an iPad, you know, or, or dog zooming by, like that's the, that's the fun part, right? Is that now we all know who each other are. Because, you know, we're not wearing our work clothes. We're not sitting in the same space anymore. We're at home just doing the best that we can. Um, and that's, if anything, I think, you know, our company has done a really good job of, of keeping the morale up and, and understanding that any, any changes, you know, are not personal. They're all business driven. And, and we're, and our, if anything does change, we're planning on actually, you know, getting everything back and then some. Um, and, and to, to be honest, like our, our, our pipeline is fine. Our industry is fine. We're not a restaurant, you know, we weren't affected in that way, but definitely it, it does, it does affect everybody. Um, and, and there's concern about everybody. Um, and you do, you know, as you engage with a colleague, you don't know if they have somebody at home who's sick or, you know, um, an elder person who's living with them, which means that nobody really is leaving the house, you know, like those kinds of things make you have to adopt a sense of sensitivity. If you didn't already have it, you know, now's the time to get it. Um, and so if anything, I would say that's been, that's been the upside. That's the upside of, of the COVID era. Yeah. I think we, we have, um, we have taught our our colleagues um, for eons that to be professional requires a certain amount of professional detachment, um, and um, maybe this era is is teaching us that that's not exactly right. That we've got to be uh, human with one another, even in our business transactions, even in our management, and that doing so is actually um, good good for all of us uh, in a lot of ways. So. Um, I, I, before we sort of wrap up, I'd, I'd like you to um, think with me out loud about the, the purposes of tending bar. So we started this because of students at Georgetown always um, asking about career plans and um, just thinking about ways to find careers that are uh, meaningful and fulfilling. And, uh, and so we wanted to introduce them to, to people like you who have had such interesting careers and have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, so I wonder what advice you would give to uh, young attorneys, uh, you know, we're finding that this is advice that all of us can probably use uh, where whatever our careers and wherever we are in our careers. But uh, what advice would you give about finding the the right uh, career for for my students at Georgetown? Yeah, I, I would say, wow. I mean, I wish they had this. I wish you had this podcast and um, when I was in school because I could have benefited it from it too. I think a lot of, a lot of what we do is really just follow the momentum of what the, uh, what the, what the opportunities are, right. Instead of exploring what the fit is going to be. And so my advice I would say is really to look at what your objectives are, what your traits are and try to follow those. Um, like for me, giving that example from earlier, like I realized I wasn't a litigator. I'm never going to be a litigator. Um, I get, I learned a lot from being a litigator, but I, I thank my, I thank myself every day from let, releasing myself from that career path because that wasn't going to be the right fit for me. So I think you really have to look at what your interests are, what your traits are, um, and really try to understand 
where you think you can add the most value, right? Because your career is going to, it's going to span a number of decades, most likely. Um, and it's going to require you to be better at other people at it. And the only way you can really do that is to have the passion for it, right? If you don't have the passion, it's it's going to be harder to to stay abreast. And for me, I would say, you know, when I, and we didn't talk about this much, but this is a big part of the path of being a female lawyer is, you know, having kids and re-entering the job force. You know, that's something that many female lawyers, you know, have gone through and it's, you know, it's indisputably hard to figure out your path back. But it's also easy to think of it as like a reset moment, which is what I did. So after, you know, after the U.S. Attorney's Office, I took off a couple of years and had had some kids. Um, and that's when I had to sort of think through, like, bring together all those threads of what I had figured out, you know, understand what I could weave them into that would allow me to be happy. Um, because once you have your kids, you're, you're pretty, sometimes you're pretty happy and that might seem like enough, but you've invested a lot in your career, you know, and, and the world has a lot to learn from you, you know, but you've got to, you've got to kind of finely tune it to what it, to what seems like it has integrity for you. So it's really not, it's not one size fits all. And it's definitely not what like, the career center tells you, you know, which is that, you know, these yeah. firms are hiring. So just, <laughs> you know, try there. It's, it's definitely got to be a lot more niche. It's got to be more custom and yeah. you've got to kind of put a lot of thought into it. So great, great advice. I, I won't let you go though, until I ask you one last question. And that is uh, back to above the law. You published an article a few weeks ago, um, earlier in the, in the COVID stay at home time talking about compassion. So some of the themes we've been talking about here, but I wonder if you could just sort of share the thesis of your article for us before we wrap up. Yeah, that, yeah, that article was, uh, that was a, that was an article that I, you know, literally composed in my head and, and wrote the next morning because it was so, it was hard to, it was hard to work that week. I think, you know, it was hard to figure out like how to focus on what you're supposed to be doing. It's hard to know what to be doing when you're worried about so many things. And, and as a lawyer, you're going to worry for your client, you know, whether it's a, it's a client at a firm or a client in house. Um, there's so many worries right now. And so that, that article was basically to try to say that it's okay to, to worry and it's okay to have a lot going on. And like, if anything, the bright lining in all of this was to sort of equalize the legal profession, right? That I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're good at different things. Um, and we've had different opportunities, you know, that's, that's kind of what it is to me. And when we can see each other on that basis as, as people all dealing with the same stuff, um, I think that's, you know, that's what made me proudest to be a lawyer is really like just putting down your guard and being a person and just everybody doing their best. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much. I had fun. Yeah. And thanks. Thanks to all of you for joining us for uh, attending bar again. Uh, Jen has such great perspective to share about how to be a lawyer and how to be a human being at the same time. Uh, and finding just the right fit in your career. I, I think we'll be talking about this 
a lot as this series continues. So I hope that you'll come back and join us again for the next episode of Tending Bar. See you soon. dog started barking and i was just, okay good because i because ha- i have all these guys right down here you've got three pugs i've got three and they like the puppy the one in the middle was like red she stood up and started barking and i was like i have a glass of water on my desk that i was about to throw on her <laughs> <Just> like- <laughs> didn't, didn't hear it at all